I'm going to tell you this morning about a discourse of the Buddha which is called the Upanisha Sutta or also Transcendental Dependent Arising. Dependent arising means cause and effect. Whatever arises has a cause and therefore we get the effect. And there is a mundane dependent arising which the Buddha taught which shows us the round of samsara, the round of birth and death. It starts with ignorance and goes through our sense contacts and our reactions to feelings. Of course, we don't like the unpleasant one and we like the pleasant ones. And because of that, there's craving for the pleasant, clinging to that, and there comes birth, rebirth, and with that arises this whole mass of suffering and what has been reborn has to die. But while in that sequence there is a doorway out, namely the non-reaction to feeling, and that's the only doorway out, that feelings are just feelings, and there is no need to react. It is a difficult thing to do, even though it sounds so simple, don't react to your feelings. I mean, what could sound more simple? Anybody who gets hungry wants to eat. Anybody who gets thirsty wants to drink. Anybody who's got a pain wants to get rid of it. So to say, do not react to your feelings, is not quite enough. It doesn't just take practice, it takes more than that. It takes an experience in that person of the fleetingness, of the momentariness of the whole person. And only then will there be a possibility to really not react. The Arahant, the Enlightened One, the Buddha, has feelings. There's no such thing as a living person without feelings. But the feelings do not enter the mind stream. They are just feelings. There are no elaboration in them. The feeling has arisen, but the mind does not have anything to do with it. It notes the feeling. It knows it. There is a feeling. It may name it. The perception may be there. This feeling must be from hunger, or this feeling must be from a pain in my knee, or whatever it may be. There may be a naming, but that's all. But while we can practice, we can't perfect without insight. And therefore, we can't really get out that door until insight. But the Buddha gave a second sequence of events, the transcendental dependent arising, 
which shows a different way of getting out of that sequence, of that round of birth and death. And this one does not start with ignorance, which is our birthright, so to say. We come equipped with it. But it starts with dukkha, with unsatisfactoriness, with suffering. And that, of course, is also our birthright. But here, we have a chance to recognize it. Whereas someone who is ignorant hasn't got a chance to recognize ignorance. Ignorance prevents the knowing of ignorance. But dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, does not prevent us from knowing it. We have that possibility. And it usually, in most people's cases, it takes a bit of a hard knock. The soft knocks are usually overlooked. The soft knocks usually just have the reaction of, well, if he wouldn't do that, or if she didn't do that, or if they wouldn't do that, or something like that. It doesn't have a real result. But even hard knocks don't always have a real result. Hard knocks can have two different kinds of reactions. There's the kind of reaction where there is rebellion. Well, rebellion doesn't help, doesn't work. Rebellion always looks outside of oneself for the cause. <coughs> or there's resignation, which is withdrawal. Well, that doesn't work either. Because if one withdraws, one hasn't got a chance to do anything. And rebellion doesn't work because it usually results in some very unfortunate things happening. And rebellion is even more dukkha. Because there's a constant feeling of wanting to battle. And the other one is the feeling of, I want to get away from. I'm going to hide. Things aren't the way I want them, so I want to hide from them. Neither way works. Then, of course, we have those people who become totally depressed from any kind of knock they get, or the other kind which say, well, I'm going to make it anyway. Well, the second kind at least has a chance of living a mundane life. But there is no chance of overcoming the dukkha because even though one gets over that one hard knock, what's there to prevent other hard knocks to follow? We haven't got any guarantees at all. So the unsatisfactoriness has to be seen differently from all these possibilities. We mustn't rebel, we mustn't resign. And we must go beyond thinking, okay, I'll make it. Those are the survivors. And they're fine, at least they're surviving. But what are they surviving? And for how long? I've already said that the most we can expect is somewhere around 80, isn't it? Well, most people don't make it that far, but some do. And what do they survive? They survive some sort of tragedy 
just to be open to another one. Now, they may be spared that second one. Who knows? There might not be a second one happening. Most people who have not been able to solve the first one get the identical one a second time. And if they don't learn that one, they'll probably get it the third time. They might learn, though. But still, we're still in the mundane realm of where everything is prone to happen to us. And we'll have to, in order to get beyond that, see the insecurity of it all. One fire can destroy all our belongings. One accident can destroy our body. One kind of rejection can destroy our family life. These things are bound to happen. They are constantly there. And because of that, we have to know inside of ourselves the anxiety which exists. Unless we have already withdrawn, we don't want to know about it. And then, of course, it depends how far we have withdrawn. People withdraw so far that they'll have to be taken to hospital at times. Sometimes they withdraw halfway. They can still function, but they've cut off feeling. It can be effectively done. It's a pretense situation, but then we're all living in a pretense situation. Some people pretend this and some people pretend that. Some people pretend they have no feelings. We're all pretending something. We're all pretending we are somebody. So whatever the pretend situation is, it doesn't matter. This one is dangerous, the one where we don't know about suffering because we'll never get out. We're going to be immersed in it forever after. That one, while it changes in itself, the kind of dukkha that we get changes. We don't get the same dukkha all the time. It's always different. But because we can't see clearly that we can't get out unless we step in a different direction, we can even call this more or less a permanent situation. From that real understanding that there is transcending, that there's a different way of handling it, comes what in English we call faith. And faith in the Buddhist terminology is different from what we in a Christian society think of it. We have no other word. but. A better word might be trust. In Pali, the word is sadha, which actually means literally translated confidence. The Buddha said something interesting about faith. He compared it with a blind giant who meets up with a small, very sharp-eyed cripple. The blind giant is called faith, 
and the sharp-eyed cripple is called wisdom. And he says to that sharp-eyed cripple, I'm very strong and I can go far, but I can't see where I'm going. And you are very weak and puny and you can't go very far, but you can see very well. So come and ride on my shoulders and together we'll really go the distance. Faith has to have wisdom on its shoulders. In other words, blind faith can move mountains, but it doesn't know which mountain to move. And that's the danger that has always been inherent in faith. You can't see, it's called blind faith, if you can't see, how do you know which mountain needs moving? So wisdom has to be part of it. So we call it confidence or trust. That confidence is essentially in something that is unknown to us. But it is an underlying intuition. An underlying intuition that there must be something more to life than what we've experienced so far. That can't be all. And unless we have that intuition, we must be pretty closed up in our sensitivities because it's a human quality to know that. And that's what makes us search. Search in many directions, not always in the right direction. In fact, most of the time in the wrong direction. But that search also leads us in the right direction where our intuition has told us there must be something more. It can't be just eating and sleeping and making a living and procreating and getting sick and well and then dying. There must be a bit more than that. That can't be all. And while we do get a few flashes of it, of this little more, when there is a beautiful contact to our senses, like a beautiful sight, or a sound, or even a beautiful feeling. They are too fleeting to fill us, and we go after them again and again. Some people get addicted to classical music. That's what makes them happy. Or to beautiful sunsets, or to the old masters, painting of the old masters. That's what makes them happy. These are fleeting sense contacts. And there is a feeling of a little bit of transcending the daily grind. But it isn't fulfilling. It doesn't fulfill. If you read the life stories of great painters and musicians, and if you have read them, you will know how most of them have been desperately unhappy. They thought they had transcended, but they hadn't. Even those that made the masterpieces, not just us who are listening or looking at them. The intuition tells us, and our intuition tells us, that transcending means finding a different path. Then also that intuition we trust. And then it's dependent upon the fact whether we hear something or read something, get to know something, which shows us a different path. 
a different way. We call that the Satya Dhamma, the true Dhamma, the true teaching. Now the true teaching does not necessarily have to be Buddhist teaching. It's got to be true in a sense of being spiritual. In a sense of creating not blind faith or following a guru or believing whatever is being said and then doing mechanical action. But it has to fill the heart with the uplifting surge of joy that here I see something that can take me beyond the daily things which make me unhappy and it has to fill the mind with the understanding I know I can understand how to do it. Only if those two are co-joined can proper trust and confidence arise. And it doesn't matter where it comes from. The Buddha never said that he was the only teacher. What he said was, investigate the teaching and question the disciples. Investigate the teaching and question the disciples. And only if that is done and you are fully satisfied, follow it. So when we get through our own intuition, the understanding that there's a bit more to life than what so far has been offered on a platter to us, the material life. The material life which has no out. Material things fall to bits, just like we do. Everything that's material falls to pieces. We fall to pieces. Everything falls to pieces. So if we have seen that there is something and then have the good fortune to find the first step on the path, an understanding of a path, trust, confidence arises. And then as we hear a little more, practice a little more, we keep going. That doesn't mean that one cannot live an ordinary daily life anymore. One has to live an ordinary daily life because this body needs being fed. If the body is not being fed, it will perish after some time. Not as quickly as one might think, but after some time. Now this faith is sometimes called the water-clearing gem. That's just an expression in Pali. It means it clears the muddy waters that are surging around in the mind and taking away the possibility of seeing clearly. Because the trust and the confidence no longer has this skepticism in it and it no longer has a materialism in it. Materiality and also religiosity do not answer this quest. Neither one, because they're both based on premises which are, they come from a wrong perception. It's not religion 
which shows us the way out. It's a spiritual path which shows us the way out. And it's not materialism, of course, because there's no way out in that. That's going around in circles. So this faith, this water-clearing gem, which clears a little bit of our defilements away, because of that makes joy arise. Kind of inner joy. An inner joy of knowing where one is going. And this is a surefire antidote for depression and boredom. If one knows where one is going, and one knows it's only up to oneself, and it has nothing to do with winning over others, or being right, or having some sort of attachment or clinging, on the contrary, it's entirely dependent upon one's own purification and upon one's own practice, the joy arises in the heart automatically. Because one sees something that is quite different from what everybody else is talking about. And what everybody else is talking about doesn't seem to make people terribly happy. If you give one moment to thinking about the people you know, those you know fairly well, and then think about one person who is really and truly full of inner joy. Only people who can be full of inner joy are those that are following a path out of materialism. And a path which shows them a vision right from the start of overcoming all that ails them. It doesn't do it right from the start. One doesn't overcome one's dukkha right from the start. But the vision is there. The vision of being able to overcome because something has been seen. That inner joy is an absolute prerequisite for meditation because now this path goes into meditation. This inner joy depends upon seeing that the purification of heart and mind are the necessary first steps as we've been talking about loving kindness and compassion and generosity and moral conduct. Without those there is no inner joy. Because without those there is nothing but selfishness. And without those there is only material gain. And there is also lack of contact. The contact is strictly limited to one's senses. But anyone who has ever been on a search or a quest for truth knows that there is more than, there has to be more than our senses. It's too limited and too limiting. They do not offer what we are really looking for. So this inner joy which arises from knowing where one's going, that there is a path and the trust one has, the confidence that one has chosen a proper one because the mind understands and the heart loves it. 
Only then does one know that one has chosen the proper one. There is no doubt. If one understands, one doesn't need to doubt. And if one loves, one stays with it. Absolute essential, both. So from that inner joy, when the meditation starts, comes what is called rapture. Now people are always confused about that word because it always sounds as if fireworks are going off. Well, they don't have to be going off. Rapture has five different ways of appearing. First of all, it is the moment when the thinking stops in meditation and when one is attentive to feeling. This is physical feeling and is the very lowest of what we may call a meditative absorption. Physicality, physical things are always at the bottom, at the base of everything. First we have to come through that, through the physical. That doesn't mean it's nasty or bad, it just means it's the bottom rung. What we have as material manifestation comes first. First we all know that we have a body. So the first thing that happens is physical feeling. It can be like waves, it can be like hair raising, not hair raising, that's like frightening, not, not like that. The hair rising on one's body. Waves, it can be like flashes or it can be like an inundation, as if one is drowned by it. So it can be mild or it can be strong. It can be momentary or it can last a while. And it's always extremely pleasant. But it can be mildly pleasant or it can be quite amazingly pleasant, either way. Now that rapture has to have as its base the joy of the past the trust and the confidence. And sometimes the two work together. If the trust and the confidence has been there mildly, and then the rapture arises, the trust and the confidence becomes complete, because what the Buddha said obviously happens. This physical rapture results in emotional happiness. This emotional happiness, now mind you, all of this, what I'm saying, is all the mundane part. This is all worldly. The transcending starts much later. This is on the worldly part. But it is the worldly part which is necessary in order to go to the transcending part. There are no shortcuts. And one of the very important spiritual qualities is patience. Patience and perseverance. If one puts seed in the garden and waters it and cultivates it, one has to have patience till the plant comes up. 
If one acts like a little child and starts digging it up the next morning and running back to Mama saying, look, nothing has happened. I put the seeds in yesterday. One can't expect it to work. So with the, from the uh, rapture, which has arisen, comes the happiness. The happiness is emotional and is one step further than the physical pleasant feeling. Happiness is bound to arise because if one has a pleasant physical feeling, there is happiness. The happiness can be strong or mild depending upon how strong the rapture was. The word rapture is misleading, but I can't think of another word. I can say pleasant physical feeling. It's usually translated as rapture. The Pali word is piti. Now the happiness which arises is the first time, if it arises for the first time, in one's life that happiness has arisen independent of outer conditions, dependent only on inner conditions. That kind of happiness is of far more value than the one that depends on outer conditions. The one that depends on outer conditions is constantly falling to bits because outer conditions are constantly falling to bits. The weather changes, the stock market changes, the people that live around one change, the food changes, everything falls to bits all the time. One day it's nice food, next day it isn't. Constantly something happening to it. So when the happiness arises, this kind of happiness, the first time it's the inner happiness has arisen and very often it is of such an overwhelming experience that one starts crying because that kind of happiness has never been experienced before totally independent of what goes on in the world now if one can become at least happy independent of what goes on in the world one has taken quite a step it's still dependent happiness it's dependent upon concentration because all this is dependent upon meditation and concentration. But, not as difficult as it may sound, and it's not as far-fetched as it may sound, anybody can do it. If the first steps have been accomplished, the trust and the confidence in a spiritual path, and then sitting down to meditate, Anyone can do it, bar none. And many people do get stuck on that one. They stay there because it's so pleasant. Well, that's just another attachment. We haven't even got to the transcending path yet. We're still on the mundane level. Any good teacher will show up that difficulty and tell the student how to overcome it. It's only a small matter. The happiness that has arisen then has as its resultant peacefulness, tranquility. Now these three are sometimes compared to when the rapture rises as having been very thirsty and seeing water in the distance. 
and getting all excited about very soon being able to drink. Being thirsty, of course, means that we are not fulfilled. Something is missing. The happiness which arises is compared to drinking the water. Feels really happy being able to drink it finally after being thirsty for so long. And the peacefulness and the tranquility which arises is compared to going on under a tree, lying in the shade, having drunk one's fill and being totally at ease, having got what one wanted. That's the tranquility. Now, in this particular sequence of events, after this tranquility only arises proper concentration. Now, that doesn't mean that these steps do not need concentration. They do. They need the concentrated path in order to get to these three steps. But from these three steps arises the kind of concentration which can then gain insight. Without having prepared the mind through these steps, proper, deep perception, real insight is not possible. The mind can first of all not do it, and secondly, if it gets a, an inkling of it, it can't handle it. It immediately says, no, I want to get back to my old, comfortable, accustomed place where I've always been, where I know the surroundings. And that, of course, prevents one from going further. So first the mind has to be prepared through these three stages of rapture, happiness, and tranquility. And at that moment, when there is, can you imagine a person lying under a tree, having absolutely not a single worry in the world, being totally at ease, having everything they want, and then being shown something new. That kind of person can actually grasp it. They don't go and say, ah, oh, but. There's nothing in the mind. The mind is clear. The mind is not having any waves of turmoil in it. The mind is pure. Because in those three steps, the five hindrances have been suppressed. They have not been eliminated. They are like weeds, these five hindrances. They have to be uprooted. But for uprooting, one needs insight. But for cutting down, one needs calm, tranquility, happiness. So these hindrances were totally suppressed at that time. No sensual desire, no ill will, no sloth and torpor, no restlessness and worry, and no skeptical doubt. Only when those hindrances are suppressed, of course, is the mind clear. And only when they are suppressed can the mind get rapture, happiness, and tranquility. So, because the mind at this time doesn't have any of those enemies in it, the concentration can be total. And that is called seeing things or having the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. 
In Pali it's called Jata Bhuta Jnana Dasana, having the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Now, it is not uncommon for people who have had rapture, happiness and tranquility to do nothing, just lie in the shade of that tree and enjoy it. That means they are staying on the mundane path. They are not getting out. So there has to be a deliberate direction of the mind towards insight. Insight in the first instance is insight into impermanence. That is the one which is not only easiest to see, but it's the one which is so constantly available that one doesn't even have to try. And the mind which is not bothered, not worried by its enemies, cleared through the water-clearing gem of faith and trust and confidence, that mind can see. It can see the impermanence, not of just what one owns, not just of what one knows because one keeps forgetting it, not what one owns because one keeps losing it, not all those mundane things, material things, but it can see its own impermanence, that peace, tranquility, happiness are totally impermanent because the minute one comes out of that meditation, it's all back to where it was before. This is exactly what the Buddha experienced when he was with those teachers that I told you about. He learned the meditative absorptions, and the teacher said, now that's all we can teach you, now you can be teacher here too. And he said, no, thank you, that's not what I came for. Because the minute he came out of the meditative absorption, he knew that the suffering was the same as before. There was still birth, decay, disease, and death. There were still the things one couldn't have and the things that had one had and didn't want. It hadn't changed at all. One was still in the mundane realm of good and bad, of wanting and not wanting. So if one just lies in the shade of the tree, enjoying oneself, one is in that same spot. So here, one has now to use the clarity, the spotlight of the mind, towards seeing impermanence. The impermanence of the mind, the impermanence of the body, and as one sees it clearer and clearer, there comes the moment of actually feeling oneself to be nothing except just a wisp of the wind and everything else the same. Now only the totally tranquil, happy mind can accept that. Otherwise we don't accept the fact that there is nobody there. It's much too, not only frightening, but it's the ego doesn't allow it. Me, who's tried so hard all these years, I'm not really here. Nobody wants that. But when the mind is totally happy, totally at ease, nothing is worrying it, nothing is bothering it, 
and has seen with clarity the inner happiness and joy, then to know that there is really only a wrong perception is the greatest relief and release there can be. Knowing and knowledge and vision of things as they are means that one sees. The impermanence, which does not just mean that things change, which does not just mean that people die. It doesn't only mean that our blankets are going to become frayed and our money, money is going to be worth less because of the inflation. It doesn't just mean that. The impermanence has um, the aspect of that it's actually experienced that the solidity which we think there is, is a figment of our imagination. There is no solidity anywhere. And that can be experienced. And when it's experienced, the world obviously changes. And we change with it. So that knowledge and vision is still on the mundane path. Because now has to come the next step. And the next step is called disenchantment. Disenchantment with all the stuff, with everything we've ever held dear. That doesn't mean that we stop loving. On the contrary, that is the day when we can start loving properly. Because no, no longer do we want anything. We have seen with clarity not only the impermanence, but we've seen with clarity that Wanting creates only suffering. The first and second noble truth. The first noble truth of dukkha and the second noble truth of the only reason for dukkha is wanting. I want. And most of the time, I can't get. Or if I can get, I want something else. Because what I've already got, well, I don't want it anymore. So I need to want something else, don't I? So then comes the moment of seeing disenchantedly that there is nothing that's worth wanting or worth getting. Nothing at all. Not only does it have no solidity and no substance to it, the wanting itself makes it seem as if it had substance. So the wanting creates again the solidity. And that disenchantment means everything. There's nothing that's worth having anymore. Now, the reason we can start loving, truly loving, is because we can really give, because we don't want to have. Then we can really, truly give. Only then. Does it become pure? From that arises total dispassion. The disenchantment is the first step and the dispassion the next one. And that's the start of the super mundane path. So all the way to disenchantment, we're still on the mundane path, but at least we're on the right path. But when it comes to dispassion, when we have come again to that 
expanse of being under that shady tree and having realized that there's nothing worth having, worth wanting, worth getting, worth owning, worth being, worth becoming, because not because it's unworthy, but because it's a figment of our imagination. It has no solidity to it. There's nothing that can satisfy. When we then have that stance of dispassion, we sit under the shady tree, totally at ease. There's nothing to gain and nothing to lose. It's all happening anyway. That dispassion is then the super mundane path which leads to liberation. The liberation, the vimuti, is the liberation from self. And when it's a liberation from self, it's a liberation of all problems. Because only self can have problems. Only self can have rebirth. Only self can have any kind of connection, attachment, clinging. The dispassion has to extend itself towards what are called the five khandhas. I have mentioned them to you before. The five attributes of clinging, which are body, feeling, perception, mental formations. When we see that our attachment to them, because we have become disenchanted, with all that exists, we can then see that our thinking, our attachment, that this is my body, my feeling, my thought, my perception, my sense consciousness, that we can see quite clearly that this is also a figment of our imagination. That thoughts are thoughts, like air bubbles. And feelings are feelings. And a body, well, what's a body? from dust to dust, huh? So what is there? What is there of me? So the dispassion towards the feelings and the thinking and the body arises out of the disenchantment with all that can be had through those things, through body, feeling and thought. All that's available to us through our body, which is comfort, through our feelings, which are sometimes pleasant or unpleasant, through our thinking, which is sometimes wholesome and sometimes unwholesome, because we are disenchanted with the results of that, we can see quite clearly that we become dispassionate towards them and we can see quite clearly that they have actually no substance, no person. They are just happening. Air happens. Water happens, sun is there, stars are there, clouds are there, feelings are there, thoughts are there, bodies are there, trees are there. Everything is there, but so what? What's in it? That dispassion then includes one completely, and from that comes liberation. The liberation, which is called Vimuti, which is called Nibbana, which is called cessation, 
which is a path moment. This path moment arises in or out of meditation. It's a moment when the senses are not operating, but the awareness is. And the awareness is aware of just itself. And at that moment, there's no explanation, there's no understanding, there's just awareness. When the moment is over, it's called the fruit moment. And that fruit moment is a moment when one knows without the shadow of a doubt how many of the cankers of the defilements one has obliterated. You see, the path moment is a moment of experience, the experiencing of something other than one usually experiences. It's the experiencing of a non-self experience, but it doesn't say, I am not here. It's just an experience of it, an experience which is just totally aware, aware of something different in oneself, something which has no sense contact and no solidity. And then comes the moment after, which is the fruit moment, which then knows I'll never be able to crave again or I'll never be able to get angry again whatever stage it is at. It is the knowledge of having destroyed the cankers. Having destroyed all of them means arahanship, means enlightenment. Having destroyed some of them are several stages on the way. The person themselves know what has happened. It all starts with knowing Dukkha give you a chance to ask some questions.